Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It's November the 9th, 2022, a Wednesday. A couple of days next Friday, actually, we're doing a show uh, around a new novel called The Acrobat, a, a fictional recreation of the great Hollywood actor Cary Grant's life. You'll all, of course, I hope you'll remember Cary Grant, particularly for his uh, performance in Hitchcock's 1959 classic, North by Northwest, a movie about a Madison Avenue executive's experience in being thrust from the world of advertising into the world of fighting evil. Uh, we are transforming Hitchcock's fictional North by Northwest into a factual show today. My guest is David Fenton. And like the fictional Cary Grant, Roger Thornhill in North by Northwest, he's been fighting evil for the last 50 years, but he's been doing it in real life. And he has a book out about it now, The Activist's Media Handbook, lessons from 50 years as a progressive agitator he's joining me from that hotbed of progressive agitation chicago david welcome hello good to be here and yeah, um, we've managed to uh, escape all the uh, all, all the gremlins of technology david right you've been escaping political gremlins from the last 50 years tell me about your life sure. uh, and this book and and your attempt to portray your life as a as as a good guy in the marketing business over the last 50 years well i wrote the book to try to pass down lessons in how to do activist communications to the younger generation of activists and i hope it helps with that but basically i i'm a child of the late 1960s i dropped out of high school in new york to be a photojournalist photographing the revolution for an outfit called liberation news service which serviced all the hippie countercultural underground anti-war the underground newspapers all around the country at the time and i photographed riots and tear gas and black panthers and the weather underground and anti-war demonstration and a lot of great rock and roll music and that was my uh, teenage years and then later uh, i became politically active in using public relations techniques for social change and my inspiration in this was Abby Hoffman. You know who Abby Hoffman was, yeah, right? Yeah, of course. Who doesn't know Abby Hoffman? Well, young people don't tend to know until I say he's Sasha Baron Cohen in the Netflix movie, The Trial of the Chicago Seven. Then they know. And, you know, Abby was uh, incredibly brilliant and funny as hell and was great at getting the media to pay attention to him. He was a myth maker. He was superb at it. So I studied with him, and the book talks about what I learned from him. David, uh, people on the left, progressives will, of course, admire your work, both in terms of this book and your, your broader work on the communications front. But a skeptic might say, what's the difference between the media ha handbook for uh, uh, communications PR executive who are trying to get a message out their own quote unquote propaganda and an activist's media message. I mean, you believe you're right, 
But then conservatives also believe they're right. What gives you, quote unquote, the right to be more right than other people? Oh, I don't think I'm more right than other people. I think that I have a, a compass that I learned in the 60s to try to work very consciously for things that I believe in. And that includes protecting the environment and advancing public health and promoting human rights and social justice. And what I've never done is just work on a project because somebody wanted to hire me. If I didn't, disagree, if I didn't agree with it, if it didn't fit my values, I didn't do it. And of course, you know, my belief is that we were advancing the public interest. I mean, for example, yes, there are public relations people who work for the fossil fuel companies trying to delay regulatory action uh, uh, on global warming. And I wouldn't do that. I'm working for forces that are teaching people what the dangers of climate change are and how we can solve it, often in a profitable and great way. So sure, everybody has their point of view. I would say, however, that there is a lot of conscious lying in parts of the right today. I mean, certainly what, uh, Rupert Murdoch on Fox News, those people don't believe a lot of what they uh, say to get ratings and to get power and to get money. And a big problem in this country, of course, as you know, is the intentional spread of false information on Fox, online. And I know you have an interest in that subject. And in my book, I write about some of what we might do about it. Yeah, although people on Fox might claim that MSNBC is, is doing exactly the same thing. I was looking at your website, Fenton Communications, and you talk in the language of marketing about promising to discover our purpose and, and that sort of language. I wonder if the marketing industry, in a sense, over the last 50 years has caught up with David Fenton and everyone now talks your language of authenticity and meaning and making the world a better place. No, well, first of all, I'm not connected to my old firm anymore. So that's not my website. Uh, I sold that firm and I have really nothing to do with it, although I think they do some very good work. You know, I'm focused now pretty much exclusively on trying to educate the public about the dangers of climate change and what to do about it. So, you know, I think that uh, I don't use marketing language myself. In fact, I'm trying to counsel activists to use language that everybody can instantly understand. And I have a big problem with some of the so-called woke language because it violates the first principle of communications, which is use simple language that everyone can understand. And I'm sorry, when you say things like cis-normative and intersectional, the public doesn't know what you mean. And in the climate world, I'm hoping to convince scientists and activists to stop using all this obscure language that is also incomprehensible to the public. The public doesn't know what net zero means or emissions or hardly knows what carbon is. We know what does work, which is to talk about pollution. You know, the linguists and the cognitive scientists know that as you're exposed to language over your lifetime, it actually forms circuitry in your brain. And those are called frames. So when yeah, I and, think, and that, well, that that's the language or the language invented by your your Berkeley friend George Lakoff has actually been on the show. I know you yes. you live part of your your life in in Berkeley, California, where I used to live too. Uh, Lakoff is a great 
linguistic uh, philosopher, if you like, of, of frames and of community. He is, and he wrote the intro to my book. So when you say net zero, you're not activating any existing circuitry. When you say pollution, everybody knows what you mean, and no one likes it. So that's an example of how we have to use understandable language. You know, another thing I'm trying to explain to progressives and Democrats who generally, wouldn't you agree, are, 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 are pretty terrible at messaging and language. And unfortunately, people on the right- Because well, be I think they at. think, um, David, they think they're right often. They, they, they claim, <laughs> you and I are both Berkeley people, so we have personal experience of this. They, they claim the moral heights without thinking and they assume that it doesn't really matter how they say it because they're right. It maybe um, is a relic of some sort of religiosity in the American spirit. Yeah, we call it the enlightenment fallacy and the belief that the ideas are just so intrinsically brilliant that they're going to magically it's not transform so much the brilliant world. as moral. I don't yeah, think that, that, that too. But it's not moral to uh, fail to uh, educate people in a way that they can understand and to build mass movements against power. You know, one of my problems with the misuse of certain woke language goes like this. I'm a critic of woke language from the left. So if you want to help the vulnerable and the oppressed, you have to get majority support to get political power, or you can't help the vulnerable and the oppressed. So if you use language that is divisive and prevents you from assembling a majority, you're not helping your goal. So the left gets very sectarian. As you know, this is a problem of the left in history. And now the word has been coined identitarianism. And of course, identity is important and valid. But if you over focus on only identity, you will not assemble majorities and you will not get power. And of course, David, you and I are talking on November 9th, 2022, when the country, right. American political world is increasingly divided between left and right. No clear oh, winners boy. or losers here. They, indeed, there's a new squad in Washington. It's interesting that your book also comes with a blurb from Catherine Hayhoe, a very prominent environmental activist. She was on the show recently, uh -huh. uh, and she's written a book about a new conversation in terms of the environment. I assume that you and she have spoken or you've educated her about the need for this new conversation about the environment. No, I didn't need to educate Catherine. She's a natural. She's the most articulate climate scientist in the English language. And I have made videos with her aimed at conservatives where we uh, have learned how to explain climate change to conservatives in a way that explains how it threatens what conservatives care about. Climate change threatens their property and their health and their freedom and their security and immigration. So Catherine is a natural at that. And Catherine also has the best metaphor and I've tested it. So I know it really works for what we're doing to the climate, which she says, we've put a blanket of pollution around the earth that is trapping heat that used to go back out to space. And that of course is making the storm stronger and melting the ice. I wonder with Catherine, one of the reasons why she's such a good communicator is that she's married to a preacher. 
That's and, true. And, and perhaps to be a great communicator, you also need to preach without seeming as if you're preaching. That's not right. As if you're coming from Berkeley, California and talking down to the, the ordinary people. Yeah, you know, I, uh, an advertising executive I know after watching the videos I made with Dr. Hayhoe, with Catherine, said, she makes me feel so good about the end of the world. <laughs> She's yeah. very likable. And, but you know, I've put videos with her and other uh, people that have a conservative appeal into the social media feeds of conservatives. I've bought them into their feeds. You know, just to back up for a minute, when conservatives go online, all they ever see about climate change is it's a hoax. So how can you expect them to think anything else? So we've bought into their feeds in certain areas and tested the results. And lo and behold, when you explain this properly, using people from their tribe, support for action grows. And we are going to need some conservative support to mm. solve this wicked problem. It may indeed be interesting. DeSantis has come out of this November election looking very good. He's actually relatively, certainly compared to Trump, much more moderate and open on, on the environment. That's going to be an interesting subject. Your book, um, David, let's talk about the book, comes sure. the blurbs of, of every, pro it seems like every prominent progressive over the last 50 years, from Jane Fonda <laughs> to George Soros. Right. Who are the best in the business? Fonda, Soros, who, who have really impressed you in terms of getting the progressive message out there? Who are naturals, in addition to Catherine Hayhoe? Well, the most natural person I ever worked with was the great honor of my life working with Nelson Mandela. Right. Who was a, a beacon of unity and transcendence when you would have expected he would have been the angriest man on earth having been in prison for 27 years. Yeah, very so, briefly, David, tell us about your experience. How did you... Um, unfortunately, we're doing this on Zoom, so we don't have any slides, but we've got, I, I had some very nice photos uh, with Mandela. How did you get introduced to him? How did you come to work with him? Well, I started representing his African National Congress in the United States uh, in the 1980s, when the Reagan administration deemed them officially a communist terrorist organization. And I started bringing ANC leaders to Washington so the press and members of Congress could meet them and see that they were not what Reagan was saying. And so I was deeply involved with them. And so when Mandela got out, I helped organize his first US tour. And then in 1994, I was an advisor to him during the presidential campaign. So that was an incredible experience. And, you know, people forget we were very involved in the anti-apartheid movement and passing sanctions against South Africa, which is how Mandela got out eventually. And, you know, Ronald Reagan vetoed those sanctions. And it's hard to believe in today's political climate, but we were able to override his veto and pass sanctions against South Africa. So that it's was interesting that you bring up Reagan because he was a good, I mean, he may not have been a morally a particularly good man, but he was a great communicator. You must have admired him. Going up against him must have been tough. Yes, he was a good communicator. He was also a good actor. He didn't write all his own lines. Yeah, he's but a, yes, we did a go Cary Grant of politics. You know, look, 
take this uh, slogan, make America great again. When I say that, Democrats and progressives cringe. But what I'd like them to understand is that that works. The repetition of slogans like that actually changes the brain. So when we're this tower of Babel of complexity, we are not helping our cause and our values. That's really the, the reason I wrote the book to explain that. How, how much are conservatives getting it in some ways better than progressives? Now we did a show um, last month with a, a young journalist, Kyle Spencer. She has a new book out, Raising Them Right, about the success of conservative activists, evangelical activists in breaking into colleges and really rounding up and inspiring young people. Mm -hmm. It's not something that you or I, I think, would be particularly thrilled with, but it's clearly effective. She's a critic too, but she recognizes that they're doing a good job. Are, are conservatives, have conservatives learned the skills of progressive activists like you from the 60s? Yes, they have. And in fact, they are a reaction to us. You know, I write about this in the 60s. We were in touch with mass public perception and even popular culture was boosting progressive values back then. And so there was a counter reaction. And a guy named Lewis Powell, who Nixon later put on the US Supreme Court, wrote a very famous memo about how to, as he would put it, take our young people back from these lefties and Ralph Nader's so that they wouldn't be anti-business anymore. And they created a very disciplined structure. You've heard of the American Enterprise Institute and the Heritage Foundation, yes. and the Federalist Society. So the Powell memo laid all that out. Now, you know, the, the people on the right, they go to business school. They're not, we go to the humanities, the sciences and the lodge in general, some exceptions. And in business school, they have to learn how to sell things, uh, products and services to advance their careers. So they have a natural focus on mass persuasion and sales. And we have this problem generally that we look down on the art of selling ideas as we were talking about before. We think a brilliant idea should magically and telepathically just work because it's so smart. And that's not the way the world works and the right understands that. So they organize these persuasion campaigns. And sometimes, you know, it's a real propaganda war. We're not even really on the field like we should be. Now, of course, I'm for only telling the truth. And when we simplify doing it ethically, they have no such compunctions. Would you ever lie? Is lying ever justified from a no. marketing man, a communications guy? No. In fact, one of my uh, 10 principles of activist communication is always tell the truth. It'll, it's not ethical and it'll backfire on you anyway. So no, I think uh, I, I would not do that and, and I never have. What's your take as a marketing guy on the Obama phenomenon? Was he again, like Mandela, a natural, someone who simply got it and was able to communicate progressive yeah. values to ordinary people, to centrists, even to conservatives? Yes. Obama was an, it is an incredible communicator. Did you see his stump speech for Fetterman just recently? Yes, yes. The, the guy's a, a natural. And, you know, I remember when he gave that first speech at the 2004 Democratic Convention uh, and wowed everybody. He was he's an amazing communicator. You know, a lot of us feel that we wish he had done more with that ability. 
but that's a whole other story. Is there a new philosophy, progressive philosophy, uh, David, that we need to join the dots on? We've done a, we've been doing a lot of work on the philosophy of regenerative economics and the environment. Mm -hmm. uh, one yesterday, actually, with Richard McCarthy, one of the founders of the slow food movement. Uh -huh. um, and of course, we, we, uh, we talked to George Monbiat about regenesis. Oh, right, right. Do we progressives need to join the dots to build a new overall philosophy to counter the right in 2022? Well, I mean, Joe Biden might be a decent guy, but he's not exactly inspiring. No, he's not. He's not a communications leader. He doesn't really use what they call the bully pulpit of the presidency. You know, I, I, I like Joe Biden. He's a sincere person. But take on the climate issue. He has not had one public meeting with a climate scientist, not one. He's not given one primetime speech about the most important issue facing humanity and civilization. He doesn't rouse people. I think a lot of why young people where he has low popularity ratings with young people, even though he's a very sincere, good person, and he really cares, is, you know, he's a senator. He's not an orator. So hopefully the Democrats uh, will put people up who understand more how to use, I mean, the presidency is unique in that the president has daily access to the minds of Americans. Nobody else has that. So to it needs to be used to transform public awareness like Franklin Roosevelt did. And I'm sure that that will happen again. But as for your question, look, people like George Bombier, you know, we, we know that if we don't create an ecological economy, we're not gonna have an economy. That's really the choice. And if we don't rapidly move to pollution-free energy and pollution-free everything else, the economy is going to collapse and people are going to get sicker and sicker. So this is something we need to explain to people, especially that it is possible and that it will make the world better. In the case of energy, it will make energy cheaper. There's no question about it. But I would say also, you know, who's a great communicator in his way is Bernie Sanders, because he tells people who are angry that their income has been transferred to the wealthy, which it has empirically. He tells them what happened. Unfortunately, Bernie, in my opinion, made a classic framing and language error, stubbornly insisting on calling himself a socialist. In America, when you say the word socialist, everybody says, I don't like that. So I'm not sure why he had to burden himself with that. I wish he hadn't. How has the world changed as a communications PR man over the last 50 years. When you began, there were superstars, um, media stars. You, in 1979, you were one of the people behind uh, Springsteen's No Nukes, Madison Square Gardens concert, which had a big impact. Um, you've worked in your life with many quote unquote superstars. Today in the social media age, Things are more complicated, aren't they? Are you nostalgic yeah. for a simpler time back in the 60s when stars were stars and people were people and everyone knew where they stood? I wouldn't say I'm nostalgic, but you're certainly right. It's more complex now to reach people. Look, again, you know, the goal, the, the job of, 
of anybody that wants to change the world is to reach people repetitively with simple messages. And, and again, repetitively. So it used to be in the age of Abby Hoffman, if you got on one or two of the three television networks, the whole country heard what you had to say. And that world is gone. So now you have to be really smart about how to use social media, how to make things get attention, how to make them go viral. And in my opinion, you have to be willing to pay for some of it because it's difficult to get enough repetition without buying some of it unless you somehow get Mark Zuckerberg to give you millions of dollars in ad credits. Social media advertising costs a lot less than people think. And I'd like to see progressive groups use it more intelligently. But it is more complicated. There's no question about it. And it makes the need for simplifying and repeating things even greater so that you can break through. You wrote this memoir. It's, it's, a lot of it is, is the story of David Fenton. We did a, another memoir with Jonathan Taplin, another music producer, actually. Right. He's, he's an old friend of mine, lives in L.A. Uh, I know Jonathan. Behind yeah. uh, the Dylan concerts in the in the heat uh he was dylan's road manager for a while right, right. he has a new book out called um uh the magic years which idealizes the politics of the 60s are you in taplin's camp when you were writing this book and in the writing and in the narrative do you think that the 60s was as, as taplin said the magic years look it, what was magic about it is that it was a more utopian time. And that utopianism and sense of possibility was communicated through popular culture. The music on the radio was basically boosting the values and causes that we were active in. So it was a heady time in that regard, yes. I think he's right about that. You know, at the same time, there were a lot of crazy mistakes made at that time. You know, the weathermen from SDS started bombing buildings and turning people against the anti-war movement. You know, we helped Nixon uh, in, in many ways, it, it, uh, you know, just like now I think some progressives with these words like defund the police have helped Trump and helped the right inadvertently. So, you know, there's no perfect time. The only time that matters is now and the future. And what do you make of some of the, the messaging and the identities of younger progressives today, Greta Thunberg in particular, she seems to be another communications genius in her own unique, quirky way, as well as political figures like AOC. I, I know you're not a big fan of, um, of, of, of Sanders embracing the idea of socialism. AOC is more media savvy, isn't she? She's incredibly media savvy. Too media savvy. Can you be, David, can you be too media savvy? Can you be all media, all hat, no heart? Well, you can be too much of anything, I suppose, but she's really good. Uh, I mean, she's a natural. I think that woman, you know, may well be president someday. Uh, she And she has such a, have, have you been watching her little tete-a-tete uh, -tete with uh, Elon Musk? It's been brilliant to watch. She's incredible. <laughs> yeah, although Elon, I, I'm not a big fan, but he's also in his own way a master of communication. He is. Yes, that's true. Uh, unfortunately, uh, you know, I don't know what's happened to him. 
promoting voting for people who would destroy the climate seems at odds with his uh, overall purpose. But who can understand things like that? And what about you know, Greta Thunberg? What, what's your take on her? As I a, think Greta as is terrific. Greta's terrific. She's not nearly as well known as people on the left think. If you go out in the street and ask Americans if they've heard of Greta, I, you know, my guess is you'll get 10, 15% of people that know. But I think that we have to watch our symbolism. You know, I'm a big fan of Greta, but I'll give you one example of, of something she did that I think was a mistake, personally. So, you know, sacrifice doesn't sell. And in fact, to solve global warming, we are still gonna be able to have cars and heat our homes and take vacations. We're just gonna to have to power it differently. The problem is the fuel and power that we're using. So when Greta took the boat to New York for the UN climate conference and you know, on the sailboat for like, I don't know, two weeks, I think that's the wrong message to tell people that they can't travel, they have to sacrifice, it's like there's this environmental group. I think it's the World Wildlife Fund. It's a great group, but every year they do a global warming action that I think is a, a poor choice. It's called Zero Hour, I think. And, and they have everybody turn the lights off all over the world. So why would you want people to think they have to live in caves to solve global warming? I think that's a mistake. But Greta is terrific. David, let's end with some practical advice. As you said, uh, you're the author of this new book, The Activist Media Handbook, Lessons from 50 Years as a Progressive Agitator. We did a show last year with a young woman who's an anti-plastics activist. Uh -huh. She had, I think, rules of five R's or four R's, recycle, reuse, and so on and so forth. I'm not sure if you have an R rule in your book, but but what would you say to someone listening or watching to this and think, I want to be involved. I care about the environment. I don't want us to trash the earth. What should they do? How can they begin? And if they are starting an organization, how important should they prioritize their messaging? Well, messaging is essential because, you know, we need a mass movement against the evil fossil fuel industry or we will not defeat them. And we will not get a mass movement until more of the public understands how urgent this is and how solvable it is. So, and you know, successful social movements are the ones that seize and hold the moral high ground. So look at the moral situation we're in. We literally, this is literally true, there's about a hundred guys at the fossil fuel companies who seem willing to end civilization, the economy and, and life on earth for humanity and many other species so they can keep making money for about another 15 or 20 more years. It's very epic. Imagine what Shakespeare would have done with that conflict. So we need a mass movement against it. You won't get it until we raise the polling numbers, the urgency, the saliency, of climate change and show people what can be done about it. And climate change cannot be solved at an individual level. It can only be solved by mass action to change the basic infrastructure of energy and transportation, et cetera. So I have laid out some basic rules at the front of my book and they included what we talked about, craft simple messages that everyone can understand, speak to the heart, not just the mind, repeat your messages, tell the truth, 
recruit celebrities to help get your messages across, fight falsehood and disinformation immediately. But most of all, don't think that because you know something, magically everybody finds out about it. You actually have to take steps to ensure people find out about it. And David, how would you respond to somebody watching or listening to this and saying, well, you're living in the past. The, the, the environment is not as black and white as you present it. We've had a number of shows with investors and entrepreneurs and even some people in, on the center left who believe that new technologies of wind, of solar, will eventually fix the environmental crisis. You're pr presenting this conflict in Manichaean terms, the evil oil industry against yeah. the best of humanity. Um, you still stick to that? It's that yes, important. absolutely. And you you had George Mambio on, and he'll say the same well, thing. Well, Mambio will say something. Yeah, he would your, your, your technologists account. are largely right. I have no doubt that we will make technological progress to have clean energy. There's no question about it. We're making a lot of progress. The question is, will it happen in time? We are in a race against the clock because every day that we put more pollution in the atmosphere, we trap more heat and past a certain point, as you know, we reach tipping points that may not be reversible. So we need to incentivize that technological change. And yes, it is just a fact that the vested interests in the fossil fuel companies are trying to slow down that transformation. They are absolutely doing that. So we do have to fight them. There's no question about it. Well, we couldn't get Abby Hoffman and we couldn't get Kerry Grant or Thornhill, <laughs> but the next best thing is David Fenton. He has a wonderful new book out, The Activist Media Handbook, Lessons from 50 Years as a Progressive Agitator. Here's to the next 50, David. What else? Would you suggest people read in addition to your new book? What are you enjoying at the moment? Well, I just read um, uh, Dr. Michael Mann's The New Climate Wars, which is a fantastic book. You know, Michael is a great scientist and he was flagellated and persecuted by the right because he showed this so-called hockey stick graph that temperatures had gone up so dramatically and they persecuted him. That's a really great book. You know, I also just finished a, a, a historical novel by the great Orville Schell, um, mm. who is among the greatest experts in the United States on China. And it's a historical novel about the Cultural Revolution in China and how this helped form modern day China. And it's heartbreaking and a fantastic work of historical fiction.